Welcome to the MWC Church Podcast. MWC Church is a place where you can belong, believe, and become the person God's created you to be. Thanks for joining us online. Welcome, welcome to our Grinch series. Uh, so the Grinch actually did steal some things off of our platform. As you can tell that the, uh, the joy sign is gone and O Come, O Come Emmanuel like, sign is gone. Um, I saw some things on Facebook Marketplace this week. So I think he just like stole them and is selling them on, on Facebook Marketplace. So if you keep an eye out on them, let me know. I'll go hunt them down and take out the Grinch. Just kidding, that's not gonna happen. Um, hey, so uh, the Grinch is gonna be joining us. I mean, it, it's, it's almost 100% confirmed he, he will be joining us this Christmas, and uh, if you are one of those parents who are, your kids are just terrified of the Grinch, I promise you this Grinch looks good. Like, he's not the scary Jim Carrey Grinch. Uh, he's not going to give you nightmares. I promise he's going to be super cool and cute, and uh, uh, it's going to be a fun way to just get the kids involved and to teach them through the Grinch just the real meaning of Christmas. We know it's about Jesus, but uh, we're going to use the Grinch to kind of teach that and push that forward. Uh, so if you have anybody, um, uh, you know, that, that you've been praying about, thinking about, wanting to invite to our church, a church that really emphasizes kids and, and the family aspect and tries to make this a place that's engaging for all people, uh, invite them to our Christmas service. It's going to be a great time to, to get together. We are going to have kids ministries uh, happening, but we're going to have a special moment in our service where we're going to invite the kids out and, and just read a story together and have a, have a great time. So uh, come out to that. It's going to be a great, great time. Um, do you guys ever notice, do you ever notice that when you think back to some of your earliest memories, like, I mean, just right now, try to think back to some of your earliest memories, you don't know details. Like you don't remember them in order. You don't know step one, step two, step three. You just remember like small details, right? Like I, I, when I think back to uh, the, the first time I, I, I uh, got sick in, in the back of a, a vehicle, I remember what bag of chips I was eating. When I, when I recall the time that my, uh, my cousin broke her arm, I still remember, like I don't remember what day it was, what day of the week it was, what, I don't even know what month it was, but I still remember that I was drinking grape Kool-Aid. Like, like you remember like, like little details of things things that happened, like uh, maybe traumatic experiences. Well, for me, I was having one of those encounters where I was talking to one of my cousins about, about just growing up. You know, we grew up in Chicago, talked about, uh, you know, what, what was happening as kids and, you know, the, the bulls were just reigning champs every single year, just how awesome life was. And then we started talking about, I don't know how we got to this topic. We started talking about just the, the, the barber that we went to. We, we, uh, we were just reminiscing and we're like, literally from the age of like five to about 15, we went to the same place to get a haircut. And, and I don't know if it was the name of the guy or if this was the name of his barbershop, but it was called Don Adolfos, right? Like super Mexican, super like really, like it was like a novella kind of a, kind of a name, right? So, so we'd go to this guy. I don't know if his name was Adolfo or if that was the name of the barbershop or what, but, but we'd go to him. And I still remember just like walking in there, some of the things that I saw. I don't remember like specific details, like, like a time in particular that we went there. I just remember little details like, like they, they had this candy machine. And it was the stalest candy I've ever had. Uh, but for some reason, every single time I'd go there, I'd be like, maybe it's different this time. And it was the exact, I think for 10 years, it was the same candy in there. Uh, they had uh, chiclets and then hot tamales, the most like stereotypical Mexican candy you can get. And uh, like I, I, would, I would eat it, I'd consume it, and, and I'd be maybe all the better for it. But uh, I also remember that, that my barber never spoke one word to me. We never talked once. In 10 years, there was never even a cordial like, How's life? Or, you know, how, you know, how your parents? It was just like a, just sit down, don't talk. Uh, you know, like, if you remember that old Seinfeld episode of the Soup Nazi, it was like one of those, like, like, we just don't talk. We don't do that around here. Like, you just, you just walk, you sit in there. Uh, I never once told him what I, how I wanted my hair cut. I would just sit down, and he'd cut my hair. 
Um, I also remember that this guy, like, he had a mustache that would put, like, Tom Selleck to shame. Like, like I just remembered, like, seeing that mustache, and I would just hope, like, somehow it would just graze the back of my neck, because I was like, oh, this mustache is so cool. Like, just a very thick one. Like, like he probably had food there from, like, last Thanksgiving. Like, this, this was an, a beautiful, like, like, just, man, glorious mustache. Like little, little details like that. I also remember the, the way it smelled when I walked in there. It was a smell, maybe you know of this, maybe your grandfather knows of this. Uh, if this is you, then I'm sorry. Uh, maybe you, like, it, it smelled like aqua velva. Aqua velva. Those of you who are, like, in, you know, high school and lower, like, aqua velva is what they would use as, like, like aftershave lotion. And, and, and the reason why I remember aqua velva, I distinctly remember that because every single haircut, he would use a dry razor. I never asked him for this once, but he would use a dry razor or just a regular a blade, and he'd clean up the back of my neck. And then afterwards, he would open up that bottle of aqua velva, like, enough aqua velva in the palm of his hands to, to kind of like drown a small animal and then just slap the back of my neck with that. And every single time, I, I don't remember if, like, if it was the pain of the slap or if it was the, the, the pain of the alcohol with, the, with the sh- a, a, you know, a shaven neck like just burning me, but I remember every single time I would stare into the mirror that, that I was uh, sitting there and I just would, would see this menacing mustache just like grin. I'm like, I don't know if this brought him joy, which is why we never talked, but he would just like slap the back of my neck and I would just like, oh, just instantly do this. And in order to keep myself from crying, because usually I'd get haircuts with my cousins and you know, we, would, we would do this thing like two for flinching. So if someone like goes to hit you and you flinch, you get punched anyway. Or uh, if you cry, you get beat up. So we, we would do this thing. Like if, if anybody saw you cry, like you're just going to get beat up. So in order to keep myself from crying, I would stare directly into that mirror and, and, I, would, and I would look at this comic strip and on this comic strip were uh, these, these donkeys. I actually have a picture. It's, it's a, a reenactment, if you will. It's a recreation of that. Uh, it, it's two donkeys, and uh, they are horses, and they're leaning over the fence and eating the other side's grass. Now, it's, it's the exact same grass on both sides of the fence, but, but both animals presume that the other side tastes better. And it's a phrase that says, the grass is always greener on the other side. But on the bottom of this barber, Adolfo, the beautiful mustached man he was, the bottom of that comic strip in his barber shop said discontentment. Or in Spanish, it was discontento, right? It was discontentment. Uh, ideally, like, it, it's, it's telling us that, that you're, you're not content with what's on your side of the fence and you want what's not yours. You want to attain what, what is out of reach. And I don't know if he had this, this philosophizing barber of mine had this because he was trying to tell me to be content with the haircut that I was getting. Like, I, I don't get to ask for one. He just gives it to me and I accept it. I have to be content and satisfied. Or if he was saying, like, like I'm going to slap you in the back of the neck, you better be content with what you're getting right now. Like, like I, I don't know why he had that on there. But, but today, I want to talk about in our Grinch series, I want to talk to us about the importance uh, or, or the topic of, of contentment, specifically looking at the character traits of the Grinch. We've already talked about how he was an unhappy Grinch, and we've, we've already outlined the fact that our happiness and joy are two different things. Our, our happiness is, is, is built upon our current circumstances, our situations, but joy is, is much deeper. It's deep-rooted. It's, it's literally the condition of where we are in eternity. It, it gives us hope. So, so we don't have to be unhappy Grinches during the holidays. We can be joyful Grinches, even, or not Grinches, that's kind of an, a paradox there. Uh, don't be a joyful Grinch, that's a, that, that doesn't work out, right? Uh, but we know that we don't have to be unhappy, that even if we're going through just the, the, the thick of it, 
the thick of it, we can still be individuals that look to Jesus to be our foundation, that that will give us hope, and by that hope, we can have joy. So this week, we're gonna be looking at the topic of contentment or discontentment. Everybody look to your neighbor, say discontentment. Say discontento. Ooh, man, you guys. Uh, Say dissatisfied. Dissatisfied. So discontentment, dissatisfied. We're going to be looking at this. And when you look at the the dictionary, at uh, Merriam-Webster's dictionary, she defines it, or he defines it, uh, uh, discontent, the attitude or state of not being satisfied with the condition of life. So how do we define discontent? It's, It's literally the attitude or the state of not being satisfied with the condition of life. You're not content with where you find yourself, with your job, with your significant other, with your children. You're not contented uh, with, with the food that you consume, the, the look of your body, the, the, the clothes that you wear, this idea of just always being in a state or an attitude of not being satisfied with the condition of life you're walking through. Biblically, did you know this? I, I studied, I did, a, I did a word search through all of the Hebrew in the Old Testament and all of the Greek in the New Testament, and I, and, I, and I looked for the word discontent or dissatisfied. In the English transliterations, we can find it, but, but when you look at the biblical languages, did you know this? There is no word for discontent and dissatisfied. They use the word not satisfied or not content. In English, we've created a word to give us an idea or a state of being, but in the Greek or in the Hebrew, in in the ancient times, the ancestors, they they never had a word that said discontent or dissatisfied. It was just not content or not satisfied. So we've created a word to display something, and, and in the Greek and in the Hebrew, it's just like you're just not content. You're just not satisfied. Every single time, It's used over a hundred times in the Bible, this word satisfied or the word not satisfied or content or not content. And every single time, I did an evaluation, over 90% of the times that we see this word, I think the exact number is 126 times, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Out of 126 times, the grand, like I would say the vast majority of those words, when we see the word satisfied or content, it's always in relation to what God is doing. He is the one who is initiating the satisfaction and the contentment. And whenever we see the words not satisfied or not content in the Bible, it's always because we try to do something apart from God. Every single time. I got a few examples this morning. If you want to look with me to uh, Psalm chapter 63, verse 3 and 5, it says this out of the New International Version. It says this, because your love, who's, who's, whose love are we talking about? We're talking about the love of God. God is the subject here. Because your love, God, is better than life. Look at verse five. It says this, because your love is better than life, I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. Because your love, God, because you are the initiator, the instigator of love, the originator, because you have poured this into my life, I will be fully satisfied, filled to the brim with satisfaction because your love is better than life. The the psalmist also says again in in chapter 65, he says this, blessed is the one you, God, so he's talking about God, blessed is the one that you, God, choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your home, the holiness of of your temple. Again, notice how God is the one that is initiating 
the relationship. He's the one who is pulling us. He's the one who's involved, and he is the one that brings satisfaction. Now, look at what happens when we remove God out of the equation, and we try to find satisfaction or contentment apart from him. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 20, just as death and destruction are never satisfied, so human desire is never satisfied. Now, I would say that in the New Living Translation, it translates death and destruction, but if you look at some of the other translations that look more for word-for-word translations, um, they will use the the names. uh, For for death, they use the word Sheol, and for destruction, they use the word Abaddon. Now, these are words that really don't translate well in English in our culture, but in the Hebrew, Sheol was another word for hell, and destruction, or Abaddon, was another word for, another name, a synonym for Satan or for the enemy. So, literally, when you look at where is the only place where the presence of God is not, where where is the only place where the presence of God does not dwell? Hell. So he's literally saying the. Solomon is is literally writing in Proverbs, just as hell and Satan are never satisfied, so human desire, and I would add in the context of this passage, apart from God. So human desire apart from God is never satisfied. Friends, my main point, my main idea, my big idea for all of us this, this morning is this. When God is the affection or the object of our desires, we will find contentment, we will find satisfaction. And when we attempt to find contentment and satisfaction apart from God, you will never be fully satisfied. You will never find all of your desires met. You may find a moment of satisfaction, a a glimmer of contentment, but I promise you this, apart from God, you will never fully find satisfaction. So today I want to talk about how we may be discontented Grinches, right? Some of you may be thinking to yourself, you know what, Pastor? I'm a pretty content individual. Like life is, life is good. I, I love my family. I, I love my job. I love my house. I just got a new one. Like, like I, I love my car. I, I, I'm not lacking much. I mean, yeah, there's occasions where I'd want something better. I have aspirations. That's fine, right? And yeah, I, to which I'd say, yeah, that, that's, that's okay. But, but you may be saying you are not a discontent individual. You are not a discontent Grinch. And today I just want to give you really quickly uh, just three ways you may be a discontent Grinch. Okay, so I want to give a a preface, a forewarning. These are not absolute statements that if if this is what you have, then then you are a discontent Grinch. There's there's obviously room for debate and argument, but but I just want to bring these to you, put them on your lap, and I want you to think about them and pray about them. But here's what I want, want us to see. The first thing is this. You may be a discontent Grinch if you have a storage unit or you can't walk through your garage or basement. Oof, I went there. I went there right now. Some of you calling your storage unit, hey, sell it all, sell it all. <laughs> you may be a discontent Grinch. Listen, I'm not saying you are. What am I saying? You may be, okay? So don't, don't write me an email saying, Pastor, how dare you call me a Grinch, right? No, you may be a discontent Grinch if you have a storage unit or you can't walk through your basement and or garage. Now, when I was telling my wife about this message, uh, as, as I was like preparing and writing it, I, I brought this first point up. I'm like, hey, is that too hard? And she's like, yeah, it is. We have nothing but boxes in our basement and in our garage. And uh, we, we have them because 
uh, Pastor Justin and Lisa were living with us. They just moved. They just actually moved into their house now. So uh, now their stuff is still at our house, but you guys will get it out of there soon uh, so that we don't have to look like discontented Grinches. Why? Why, why, is, why is this the case? Why might you be a discontent Grinch if you can't walk through your garage or your basement? Do you remember the Grinch's house? especially in the Jim Carrey film where it was just like, like it was like an episode of um, Ultimate Hoarders. Like there was just like stuff everywhere, like stacks of newspaper, this and that. And, and somebody would try to move like, no, this is important, right? Like, like, like this is the, the embodiment of what it means to be discontent. You, you just feel the need to amass more and more things because you're not satisfied. And, and somehow you believe that there is some, some sentimental value. And, and you may even use the logic, wait, wait, those are antiques. Listen, in order for something to be called an antique, it needs to be worth money, okay? It needs to be a collectible, not, not just something that has sentimental value to you, but it needs to be worth something to be considered antique. So you can continue to call it that if you want, but um, well, why do I bring this up? Am I trying to harp on your collection or your, you know, your, your, your uh, precious moments, figurines that you have amassed in the basement? You're laughing because you know it's true. I'm like hitting the home today. I bring this up because Jesus did. In Luke's gospel, in chapter 12, he, he talks about this idea of, of attaining more and more stuff. And we're gonna get there in a second, but there was this, this comedian, his name was uh, George Carlin. Uh, he's not the most church appropriate. Someone asked me, can't we just play a video? I'm like, no, <laughs> no, no. Uh, so so I, I bring it up, like watch it on your own. Like don't, don't tell me about it, but uh, this, I watched this before I was a Christian, so don't judge me, all right? Um, but George Carlin, George Carlin had, had this, had this uh, comedic routine where his entire shtick, the, the spiel that he was going on was on stuff. He'd be talking about stuff. And, and I just want to read a bit of it uh, to you. Maybe you've heard it before. He says this, the whole assertion is that, is that a house is just a place to cover all of your stuff. So when you get right down to it, your house is nothing more than a place to keep your stuff while you go out and get more stuff. Because that's what this country's all about, trying to get more and more stuff. Stuff you don't want, stuff you don't need, stuff that's poorly made, stuff that's overpriced, even stuff you can't afford. You got to keep on getting more and more stuff, so you keep getting more and more stuff and putting it in different places, in closets, in the attic. You even got drawers dedicated for stuff. And in the basement and in the garage, you get a storage unit. So now you got a house full of stuff. And even though you might like your house, you tell yourself you got to move. You got to get a bigger house. Why? Because you got too many stuff. Talks about stuff, this incessant need to fill our lives with more and more stuff. The reason why I bring this up is because Jesus did. In Luke chapter 12, there was a man, Jesus was teaching, and this man comes out of nowhere and pulls the, the hem of Jesus' robe, and it's like a, a, a preschool teacher. You ever have one of those like, students that run up to you like, teacher, teacher, and just pulling on your leg? This, little, this guy was doing this to Jesus. This man was running up to Jesus, and they're like, Jesus, Jesus, I know you're in the middle of teaching, but I need to interrupt you with this very important announcement. My father has passed, and my brother is the inheritor of all of these things. So in the Hebrew culture, the ancient Near Eastern culture, what would happen is if a father would die or if anybody would die, his belongings would all go to the firstborn son. It's not like how we have this customer, this culture in America, where if somebody passes, they write a will and they allot things and maybe they break things down in percentages and if it's not a equal part, you know who their favorite was. But uh, in, in the Hebrew culture, it was like it all goes to the son. Whether I like him or not, it all goes to the son. And, and this younger son is is running to Jesus and saying, Jesus, 
you believe that fairness is a, is a thing. Can you please tell my, my brother, who is a stingy jerk, to share some of this inheritance with me? And Jesus looks at him and is like, man, this, this, this is not the kind of things I've come to judge. Like, like you, you got a, a small perspective. I've come for, for, for deeper things, for, for nearer truth. But Jesus does use this moment as a teaching illustration. And look what he says in verse 15. He says this. Then he said to them, them, including that son, he says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in abundance of possessions. So he's, he's, how does he define greed in this passage? Greed, he says, does not cons- or, or life does not consist of an amassing of stuff, uh, an abundance of possessions. Jesus is giving the definition of greed there to be an abundance of stuff, a desire for an abundance of stuff. And then he gives this parable, verse 16, and he told him this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest, So he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger storage units. And I will add a second basement. And I will find a house with an attic. And I will store my surplus grain there. And I'll say to myself, you know what, self? You have plenty of grain. You've laid up for many years. You got stuff and stuff galore. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. And then out of nowhere, God shows up on the scene and it says, but God said, like he just spoke out in an audible voice in this parable, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be. And Jesus concludes this in parable with this, verse 21. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, here's the kicker, but is not rich towards God. I want you to note a couple of things. One, and I think our culture, especially in in, in the Christian and church culture, we've placed a value on um, poverty, a poverty mindset, and anybody who has any wealth or affluence is is somehow not as holy as the one who is not as Uh, poverty-stricken. That is a, a, a Western mindset. But a, a, a biblical mindset understands that Jesus isn't harping on the man for having amassed wealth. He's not harping on the individual for receiving a crop so abundant that he couldn't store it in his original vasts and storage units. Because if you think about it, in the parable itself, who is the one that caused it to rain? The Lord. So God is not harping on the man. Like the Lord Jesus is not blaming the man in the parable for having wealth. I don't want anybody to walk away here to say, oh, wealthiness is a sin. That's not the teaching here, nor is the teaching. The blame is not for the man who built bigger barns. Like That's not where the Lord is getting angry. I think, if anything, that is a good principle of stewardship. If the Lord gives you things, you want to manage that well. He's, he's managing his resources well. That brings honor to the Lord. So why is, is God bent out of shape in this parable? Why does he come down and says, you fool, right? Like slaps him upside the face. You fool, your life is gonna be demanded of you tonight. Why did he get so upset? Because he blamed him for not just building a storage unit, but for having the heart of holding it onto it for himself. He built a storage unit, a good stewardship principle, 
And then he did it just to hold it on to himself. And then look at what his response was for retirement. I'm just gonna sit back and take it easy. Listen, if you think retirement is something that you just like sit back and do nothing, that, that you're, you're holding out for retirement to do nothing, I promise you, you will not find satisfaction. Uh, if Robert Morris has a great book on this and he talks about the blessed life and he talks about how retirement is, is a time to, to jump into the dreams and aspirations like never before. When you were working, you probably gave yourself only 60% to your dreams and aspirations. Now God has gifted you 100% to, to throw yourself towards the, the aspirations and the dreams of heaven. And this man wanted to just sit back and do nothing, to eat, drink, and be merry. And, and what is that? when we build storage units, not for stewardship, but to, to, to hold on to things, to, to hoard? And, and, and what is the response when, when, when this individual was retiring without a purpose? The Lord said to him, not only are you being a fool, but you are not being rich towards God. Listen, if, if you're someone who is discontented, and you have storage units and basements and attics full of just stuff, things that you look to and you can't get rid of because you're just like, oh, there, there's sentimental value here and, and there's attachment here. And there's, listen, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to, to come down on you hard, but, but I, I think that there's something that we have to understand, and it's this. If you are trying to find satisfaction in any kind of material possession, you will never find it. Hence why there are mountains of stuff it may bring joy for a moment, but it's not everlasting. Amen? The second one is this. After window shopping, so the second way you might be a Grinch is after window shopping or driving through nice neighborhoods, you experience feelings of regret or frustration. Now, please help me shame the devil and tell me I'm not the only one who's ever experienced this. Right? If you've ever driven through a neighborhood and, and you're, just, you're driving, and, and, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong about driving through nice neighborhoods. My wife and I, we, we do this all the time. We love it. Uh, we get a inspiration. Now, if you're driving through nice neighborhoods and you're just marveling at, at the beauty of the architecture and the design, that's good. That's fine. Do that. Like, like, like just look in awe and be like, man, that's really cool how somebody would be so creative to design that or, or look how great that designer is. Now, I, I'm Mexican, so when I go, I look at the landscape. And I'm like, man, that is that's some good landscaping, right? So see, yeah, go ahead and marvel. Like, look at that stuff and be in awe of, of the beauty of, 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 the, of the landscaping or of, of the architecture, or maybe even dream a little bit. There's nothing wrong with that to say, you know what, one day I aspire, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna work so hard to hopefully uh, put my family in a home like this. There's nothing wrong with that. But where we might become discontent and dissatisfied Grinches is if after you are looking at those homes, you are leaving with feelings of regret or frustration. Think about that next time. Or you're at a mall and it's no longer about, hey, that's really cool, I, lo I, love, that. I love that style, but it's, oh man, if, if only I can fit into that, right? Or like feelings of regret or frustration. Now, there was one time when my wife and I were, uh, it was right before August, she was super pregnant and uh, super emotional and I, I bring that up for the story, I promise. Uh, uh, and we're just driving through these houses and uh, we're, we're looking for somewhere to live. We, we, we're thinking about putting a, a uh, um, man, what's the word I'm looking for? We're gonna put an offer in for a house and we're just driving through houses and we knew this was way, 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 way above our price for this particular neighborhood. And, and we're driving past these houses and it, at first we start off like, man, this is beautiful. These are some great ideas. Look at that, look at that farmhouse uh, lantern. I love how that looks. We need to get one of those. Like, that's a really cool thing and it looks just 
super chic, right? That's, that's the word that she uses, not me. Um, just kidding, I use it all the time. Um, so we're just driving and, and we're just, we're admiring it. And then it turns into some inspiration and aspiration. It'd be nice if, if we could do that. And then not a second later, here I am, hands on the steering wheel. And I just say out loud, I can't believe this could have been me, Katie. I could have been in one of these houses. I gave up a full ride scholarship to Loyola University in Chicago to go into ministry? Oh my goodness. What was I thinking, Katie? And then I started like getting mad at the people who lived in these houses. I'm like, I bet you they're jerks. They don't even deserve these houses. Like my character is probably way better than theirs. And I'm just going on and on. I was like, I can't believe this. I'm a smart guy. I could have been a doctor or a lawyer. Or I could have a way with words. I could have talked my way out of it. Like, and I'm just like going on and on and on. And, and you ever have one of those moments where you don't look at your wife, but you know, you know she's angry? And then you look at some reflection somewhere, like in the, in, the, in the window, and you're just like, oh, she's looking at me. I'm not going to turn around, right? It was one of those moments, and I was just like, the moment, I, the moment those words left my mouth, it was like I, could, I couldn't put them back in. And, 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 I, and I look over to my wife, and I'm like, I don't, I don't know where that came from. Like, I, I'm, I'm sorry. Like, that is the most, like, discontent and dissatisfied phrase that has ever come out of my mouth today. And uh, I, I apologize. And, and it wasn't just like me and my wife. It wasn't just like a spat between my wife and I because, you know, she, she's, she's holier than me. But it wasn't, it wasn't one of those things. It, it was one of those things where the Holy Spirit just like fell in that car. And, and he was convicting me of, of the sin of Esau. Remember Esau, Jacob and Esau, two brothers. Jacob was the younger one. Esau was the one that would have inherited the birthright from his father. And instead of inheriting the birthright that was given to him, the gift that was given to him, the grace that was given to him from his father, he traded that in for a bowl of soup. Do you remember that story in Genesis where he was just like, I'm, I'm so hungry, I want, I want the immediate satisfaction of a bowl of soup, so, so I will give you my birthright, I'll trade you my birthright, Jacob, for, for just a bowl of soup. And I felt the Lord say to me as I was sitting in that car looking at these homes that that maybe I'll never live in, him say to me, do you not value the treasure of your salvation? I've called you. I've called you to this. You, you could have lived in a home like that and you wouldn't have been in sin, but, but I've graced you with, with this calling and, and you're throwing it away and suppose you would have had a home like that. You probably wouldn't have even been saved right now. You would have gone to college and continued that lifestyle and, and, and then the Lord was just bringing this on me and, and my wife and I had a moment of just sweet repentance and just recommitment and um, you know, just uh, this was when I was a lead pastor. <laughs> it was a couple years ago, so don't judge me, but, <laughs> but discontentment, dissatisfaction, walking out of home shopping or, or, or house hunting and um, or, or window shopping, walking away with feelings of frustration and, and regret just point to the dissatisfaction and discontentment in our own hearts. We put a greater value in those things than we do in the relationship with Jesus. So consider clothing. Look what Jesus teaches about clothing. In Matthew chapter six, verses 28 through 32, he's specifically talking about clothes. Like, like why do we talk about clothes and material things in, the, in, in, in church? Because the Bible talks about it. And Jesus is talking about this in Matthew chapter six, verses 28 through 32. He says, and why do you worry about clothes? Why do you worry about clothes? 
See how the flowers of the field grow? They, they do not labor or spin. And yet I tell you that not even Solomon, who in the Old Testament was the richest, most, most lavish individual in the entire Old Testament, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that then is how God clothes the grass of the field whose shelf life is short, he says, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith. He's literally saying that when you are worried about the material things of life, it is an expression of your faith. When you're going through your closet and you're muttering the words, I have nothing to wear. That was me this morning, I promise you. Promise you not. And I was like, I have lots of things to wear. I'm a preacher, so I have to look good for you guys or else you judge me. So that's what I tell myself. But he goes on, so do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Now we, a broader application. What shall we eat, and what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans, the ungodly, those who put their hope in anything other than God, run after those things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them, so he will provide. You may be a discontented Grinch or a dissatisfied Grinch, if while window shopping or digging through your closet or house hunting, you have emotions of frustration or regret. And look what Jesus says. He says, the ungodly consume themselves with clothing, but the godly understand that our God, who is our covering and our protector, will provide for us every step of the way. Our God in heaven is more concerned with the food you will eat and the clothing that you will wear than you can ever be. He loves you, he cherishes you, and he will provide for you. So display that with your faith the next time you're in a crisis or the next time you're facing that. Lord, I trust you. You're my protector. You're my provider. You're everything I ever need. Trust him. Trust him. Be satisfied in him. Peter teaches specifically to the ladies, because if we're going to be honest, we, we could say that this is something that the ladies probably struggle with a little more, and it makes sense because everything you look on with media and marketing, they are marketed to heavily when it comes to how you look and appearances, more than men. Uh, but First Peter chapter 3, this has been something that even happened in the, in the, in the first and second century. First Peter chapter 3, Peter is addressing this in the church, and he had just finished speaking to the men. So when you read this passage, don't be like, I can't believe they're so chauvinistic. He just talked to the men, and I promise you the challenge to the men was even harder. But look what he says. First Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. To the women, all the single ladies, all the single ladies, just all the ladies, not just single ones. He says, don't be concerned. Guys, come on, stay holy. Don't be concerned about the outward beauty of fancy hairstyles. Don't worry about getting your hair did, right? He says expensive jewelry or beautiful clothes. Don't, don't be concerned, right? He's not saying that, that those things shouldn't matter. He says just don't, don't wrap. The word concern literally means to, to choke yourself up, right? Like, like don't, don't choke yourself up over these things. Instead, inversely, he says you should clothe yourselves instead with the beauty that comes from within, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is so precious to God. Now, I've had people bring this passage up as a, as a way to say, look how chauvinistic God is by saying women should be gentle and quiet and, and this and that. Now, I, I, want, I want to just 
bring some clarity to this. Um, yes, he's saying gentleness and quietness as a, as a trait to be desirable for, for the ladies in the church, but, but literally those words gentle and quiet shouldn't be things that we shy away from, like women don't shy away from this. The word gentle was the exact same word that Jesus used when he said, come to me all of you who are hungry, for I am humble and gentle in spirit. So if Jesus used that as a descriptor of his own character, I think that's not something we should be ashamed of or feel that it is chauvinistic. It's something that we should all aspire to, but especially in this passage, Peter is saying the women should do so as well. Quiet spirit is not literally don't don't look up, don't make eye contact, don't even speak up. What is he saying by quiet spirit? Well, that word is the exact same word that is used when Paul is instructing instructing the church, saying pray that life goes well with you. They were experiencing persecution from the government, and he was saying, pray that life goes well with you and that you can lead lives of faith in quietness. Quietness is a better better way to define that word. Quiet spirit is an unquarreling spirit, a spirit that does not fight or does not is not jump straight into argument. That is a way that a, according to Peter, is, is the way that a woman is most beautiful when she is gentle as Jesus and is not quarrelsome. I'm not talking just to the ladies. Guys, we need that too. And I promise we'll have a series where we go through 1 Peter and I lay it on thick on the guys. Okay, I promise you. The third way you may be an unsatisfied Grinch is this. You may be an unsatisfied Grinch if you consume more than you need. If you consume more than you need. Now, in this church, we will never shy away from any topic of discussion. We've had some hard conversations in this church and... Uh, Whenever we talk about the idea of consumption, for some reason, this is only in the Western church, you go anywhere overseas and they don't have this this issue. Whenever we talk about consumption, we automatically, because we are naturally a more vain society, we naturally assume that that is discussing physical appearance. So whenever we talk about gluttony, we say that that is only attached to a certain look and, and that's not what the Bible teaches. Overconsumption is overconsumption of anything. Gluttony is gluttony of, of anything. An overconsumption of technology, an overconsumption of sports, an overconsumption of entertainment, an overconsumption of self, an overconsumption of anything is gluttony. So, does the Bible teach about gluttony and pertaining to food? Yes, it does. But I believe that what I'm talking about specifically here is overconsuming anything. Now, who has the right to say what is overconsumption? Right, like, like two Big Macs or 10 Big Macs? Right, I know a guy who can eat 12, so if I get to like eight, like who, who is the standard? Obviously the Lord is. But even when we look at our culture, when we look at American society, I would say by and large, if we are gonna be 100% honest and be super, super honest with the word of God, I would say that by and large, we are all guilty of overconsumption. It's just in our culture. I'm so thankful that we, we read a God that does not come from America, or we read about a God or uh, a standard that is not just based on, on American standards, but it is based on, on, on God's standard, and that we, we put our culture over this and say, how do we measure up? But if you think about American society, I, I did some research on this, and and I, and I came to the realization that when it comes to just the consumption of natural resources like fossil fuels, right, coal and, and, and gas and, and fuel like that, uh, 
when it comes to, to natural resources, we only make up 5% of the world population, but we consume over 25% of it. America has a problem with consumption. In 2003, we were the first nation, the first nation, and this number is building, we were the first nation to finally become the place where there are more vehicles than there are licensed drivers. I believe the number is almost two to one vehicles. Two to one vehicles. There's, there's two ve- licensed vehicles, not just cars and a lot, but owned vehicles per every one, or, or licensed driver. And the number is growing. Studies also tell us just since 1975, the homes that are being built in 2003, this was 2003, so it's an older study, but the homes that were being built in 2003 were 38% larger the new homes being built in 1975. And that's not even including the fact that in 1975, there were more people living in a home. We're consumers, man. Christmas, Black Friday, we don't even eat dinner anymore. We're shopping. And before you tell yourself, I still eat dinner, Pastor, I'm not, you are an overconsumer. You stayed and ate dinner longer. <laughs> like, like, like all of us are guilty of this. Let's just be honest. Let the Holy Spirit wash over us and, and let's just get face to face with the Lord and say, you know what, Lord? If, if I want everything, if I want the best that you have for me, if I want to live my best life now, I know it's not going to happen when I've attained more and more things. That's not the blessed life. The blessed life is being content with what I have been given, being satisfied, being satisfied. If you struggle with being content and satisfied, listen, I want to tell you something. We're going to enter into a season of fasting in January. Now, I don't want you to think this is optional for you. Listen, if you go to this church and you receive on a weekly or bi-weekly or if, if you would consider this place your home, I am calling all of us because the Lord is calling us all into a season of fasting. Now, it's not a, I'm not going to say it's a mandate, you're required to do this, but if you want to experience the greatest blessing God has for this church, I want to challenge you to join us in this fast. And I bring this up because there is no other way, there's no other way to allow the Lord, the Holy Spirit, to teach you that you find your contentment in him than when you intentionally step aside from things, as cert- things like certain meals that you eat and comforts of life and say, Lord, I'm just depending on you. You're my satisfaction. If Jesus said man does not live on bread alone but on every word of God, that's not just true for Jesus. He didn't say Jesus lives on every, on, 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 Jesus doesn't live on bread alone but on every word of God. He says man, humanity, Adama in the Hebrew, humankind, lives on every word of God. That is our sustenance. That is our fulfillment. That's where we find our contentment. That's where we find our satisfaction. It's him, it's him, it's him. It's not in things. It's not in storage units. It's not in basements. It's not in garages. It's not in attics. It's not in windows and retailers that we can't even afford. It's not in the stuff that we desire, want, the things that we will open on Christmas. They may bring joy or happiness for a moment, but friend, it's so short lived the expiration date comes quick for all of those things I mean if we live in a culture where the moment you drive a car off of a lot it diminishes value we know that ultimately to ourselves personally will diminish in value the same way so if you find yourself to be a discontented Grinch and I think by the end of this message we should all have areas in our life like there, there is no condition here. There, all of us 
should have areas in our life that we are looking to and saying, God, how can I be more content in you? How can I be more content in you? What's our response after this message? Should our response be like, you know what, let's, let's turn into some of those uh, transcendentalists and, and uh, let's, let's follow in the footsteps of, of, of Henry David Thoreau and, and Ralph Waldo, Waldo Emerson and, and let's go live out in a cabin and not consume anything and let's be hermits and, and just like not talk to people and, and avoid society. And some of you are like, oh, that sounds glorious. That's how you're feeling? You need a vacation. Like you need to spend some time in the presence of the Lord, right? You need a sabbatical. But I, I don't think that's the response. Why? Because that is still contingent on what we do who we are, the satisfaction or, or, or the response that God wants from us in this is he wants us simply to have a heart-to-heart understanding, three realizations, and I want to end with this, three ways that we fight back against this. The first one is this. Realize, realize, realize that God has given you all things. God has given you all things your children, your home, your job, the food on your table, the clothes on your back, the church that you worship in, the family that you have to your left or to your right, everything comes from him. Memorize this, cha- this passage, James chapter one. He says this, starting in verse 16, he says, don't be, what's this word? Deceived. Don't be fooled, don't be duped. Don't be misled. Don't you dare be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. He says this, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. He's saying, if you believe that your possessions or anything that you would say is good in life comes from anything other than God, you are automatically deceived is what this passage is telling us. Now listen, I I love this country. I'm thankful that my grandfather left the country of origin and said, you know what, we're we're, we're making a better life for for ourselves. We're gonna start somewhere new, somewhere fresh. He was one of the immigrants that came here and, and, and he made a way for himself. He said, back where I was, I would have never amounted to anything and now I have a education and this and that. So, so I, I love this country. I love America. There has never been a better human experience or experiment in the form of governance in all of human existence that has ever given the potential for people to rise up from class to class so fluidly right we're blessed can we can we just say that but with that unfortunate blessing oftentimes comes the curse of believing that you are the arbiter of your own blessings. That, that if you just work hard and if you go to school and if you attain this and this degree and that and you have this promotion, then, 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 then you will attain, you will deserve, you will bring into your life all these things. Am I saying don't work hard? No, I'm not saying that. Work hard, that's a sign of, that's an extension of worship. But whether you get paid for that or not, you should work hard because you're glorifying the Lord. So what I'm saying is this. Although this nation is great, and the principle of working hard is true. You can grind and get some, get some money, pay off. Like that, that, that's awesome. But if you ever for a moment believe that you have attained any material possession because of your own hard work and it had nothing to do with the Lord, you are deceived. And you are building a bridge towards discontentment. 
and dissatisfaction. So the first way you put to death this dissatisfied Grinch is remembering that all of your gifts, all of our gifts, all of our blessings come from God. The second way is this. The second way is that you realize that God gives you himself. It's not enough, like this is how amazing our God is. It's not enough for him to just give you everything that you've ever received, but he gives you himself. This is what we're celebrating during Christmas, how Christ became Emmanuel. He became Christ with us, God with us, God in us, God among us. He tabernacled among us, what John 1.1 opens up with. He gave you himself. God, friend, God loves you. This is why Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 9 through 11, he says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pleasure. He's talking about if anybody comes and and faces life through me, through Jesus, he will find pleasure, real pleasure. But the thief, the enemy, comes only to steal, kill, and destroy will have you believe that you have amassed those things out of your own hard work that had nothing to do with God. And Jesus continues on and says, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Friend, if you are finding dissatisfaction around this holidays or if you are scratching your head or feeling regret or frustration that you can't provide a person the best gift that they want and you're, you're wrestling through these things, let me say this, Christ has come to give us life and life more abundant. He is our sufficiency. He is all that we need. I need nothing else. And Jesus ends that phrase. He says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He has given us himself. Are you thankful for a God who doesn't just give us every blessing that we have, but he's given us himself, the greatest blessing humanity could ever have. Our God has given us himself. The third thing I want us to realize, the third way we put the Grinch to death is realizing, listen to this, because this is going to be, this is going to sound heretical almost. Realize that God genuinely wants you to enjoy him. God wants you to enjoy him. Like, I remember if there was a time I would have heard that phrase, I would have been like, nah, there's no way. God's too busy, too holy, too powerful to care whether or not I enjoy him. He's more focused on whether or not I can bring pleasure to him by my good life, by my, you know, daily living than he is with whether or not I genuinely enjoy him. God doesn't care more about that. And you know what? God does. He's more concerned that with the fact of of my enjoying him and, 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 and how do I enjoy him? How do I enjoy him? By living for him and experience his blessing and experience his presence. John Piper said it this way, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. The way you bring glory to Jesus, the way you bring glory to God, the greatest way you can glorify your Father in heaven is by by being fully satisfied in him. It doesn't say that God is most glorified in us when we are the most obedient versions of ourselves. Am I saying that we shouldn't live holy lives and walk in obedience? No. But you know what would bring joy to the Father? Is if living in obedience is actually something that satisfies us. The fact that I just want to be near to you, God. 
I don't want sin to ever keep our relationship. I never want to have an arm of relationship towards you and, and not want to be near you. But Lord, I want, to, I, want to, I want to enjoy you. I want to find satisfaction in you. Not other things, not entertainment, not the consumption of stuff, but you, you, Jesus. My prayer, church, is that we would be this Christmas the embodiment of what we see the psalmist write in Psalm 73. He says this, Whom have I in heaven but you, God? Earth has nothing I desire besides you. Earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength in my portion forever. I've got nothing else. I solely exist for you, Jesus. You're not just a tag along or a friend who rides on the back seat of my life, helping me out, giving me directions where to turn left. You don't know, you are the, you are the leader. You're the one that drives. You're the one that steers. You're, you're the purpose of life itself. You're the only thing that brings me satisfaction. You're the only thing that brings joy. You're the only one that brings contentment. Everything else will fail me, Lord. But, but if I lost it all, I would still be that much richer because I have you, God. And this is Christmas where we remember that. And we put to death anything contrary. Friends, I want to end by showing you this, this video. This video is uh, written by a man by the name of J- Jason Upton. He is a, a worship leader, and he wrote this spoken word, this song, this poem. It's called Redwood and Daisies. And one day he was walking in California, and he was walking through a redwood forest, and he saw to his left that there was this giant behemoth of a redwood. I mean, clearly hundreds of years old. And at the base of this redwood were a bunch of daisies. And he just started thinking to himself, man, the, the, the lifespan between both of these are completely different. Like this daisy's life is but a season. And this redwood has been around longer than any of us. And I don't think the redwood looks to the daisy and say, man, I'm so jealous of how long it took for you to be uh, a full-grown adult. And the daisy doesn't look to the redwood and says, man, I can't believe you get to see these mountaintops. But God has created all of them to be completely content with whatever they've been given. And his prayer is that, God, I would be content. I'd be satisfied in you. I wouldn't look to the world, but I would find my joy contentment, my satisfaction in you. Let's watch this real quick. All around this place, can we just close our eyes and bow our head? Father, we know that if we're honest, honest with you, we'd recognize that, Lord, we can be more satisfied and learn to be more content. And it's not by the culmination of more and more things, more and more possessions. It's not another car in the driveway, another TV on the mantle. Our satisfaction, our contentment, 
comes with you. Lord, we know that there's nothing wrong with material things, but Father, that's not where our hope lies. Father, if there's anybody in this place that needs to sell that stuff or get rid of it or give it away or sell it and give to the building campaign, Father, if there's any of us that need to take actual steps so that we can focus and make more room and like the poet said, to to empty ourselves, to make more space for you, God. I pray that we would do that in every step of the way. Father, may our social medias be less consumed by the ways we look and may we instead paint a picture of how great you are. Father, may we no longer live for the Joneses, but live for Jesus. Keep us from trying to impress anybody but you. And Father, this Christmas season, may we unwrap and open up the greatest gift of the realization that you have come and given us everything that you've given us yourself and that you want us to enjoy you forever. Friends, just take, take 30 seconds, take a minute and just ask the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart. Maybe confess some things to him and receive that strength that he has, his presence. Let's pray for that.